Well, good morning. As we continue in our series through Ezra and Nehemiah, we've been looking at these fantastic leaders. So open up your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 6. That's where we're going to be today. And as we're thinking about those leaders, let me just draw your attention to a, a different leader in more of a modern context. Of course, what I'm talking about here is Winston Churchill. Churchill uh, led Great Britain, uh, and especially uh, during World War II, he had a prominent role there, leading his country to victory. Uh, what you may not know is that Churchill was also uh, defeated soon thereafter in the election of 1945. In the aftermath of that defeat, his wife uh, Clementine was hoping to console her husband and suggested that perhaps this whole ordeal was just a blessing in disguise, to which he responded to her, well, if it be so, then the blessing is very well disguised. Ever been there? Life inevitably confronts us with many dangers, toils, and snares when we are prone to look up and wonder, Lord, what kind of blessing in disguise is this? How can you bring anything good out of this? As we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we will inevitably face those difficulties in our lives and even in the ministry. Prosperity preachers mislead us to think that following the Lord Jesus will bring some sort of unbroken experience of health, wealth, and success. Not so. Uh, but the good news is that if you trust the Lord Jesus, you can live with the assurance that God's strength is real and available and sufficient for you to finish all that God has called you to do. And so the title of my message today is simply, Fight to the Finish. From Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah had this amazing call to action. We saw that last week in Pastor Bob's message as he rallied the people together and said, you're going to have to fight. Uh, you might remember this verse from chapter 4 where Nehemiah the leader says, fight. Fight for your families. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters. Fight for your wives and fight for your homes. And so let me ask you as we begin today, who are you fighting for? For some of you, maybe you're fighting to restore a broken family relationship. Uh, for some of you, maybe you're uh, experiencing a loved one who's battling addiction and you're fighting for them. Or maybe for some of you, uh, there's a health crisis in your family and you're fighting for that person. Uh, maybe some of you maybe have a child with special needs and you're always advocating for them and their IEP and you're always fighting for them. Or maybe some of you right now, you're fighting for your marriage. I don't know what you're fighting for, but when it comes to the work of restoration, sometimes it's a fight. And so this is going to require some perseverance on our part, and we will have to overcome some predictable obstacles along the way. Nehemiah shows us how to fight to the finish, and he's going to experience four different tactics of the enemy in our passage for today. We'll use those as the outline. Uh, your enemy wants to distract you, your enemy wants to discredit you, your enemy wants to discourage you, and your enemy wants to destroy you. In today's text, Nehemiah fights through all of these four tactics as he finishes the project of the wall, and in so doing, also shows us to overcome those, how to overcome those tactics as well. And so that's our plan for today, but as you can see, it's going to be a fight. Uh, why don't we pray and ask for the Lord's help? Heavenly Father, thank you for preserving this special text. Uh, bless our time in your word. Give, give each of us uh, the the motivation we need to fight, uh, the course of action that we need to fight, the courage maybe we need to fight as we know our call to war is to love the captive soul but yet to rage 
against the captor. And so this is a spiritual battle that we fight, and we ask that you'd help us to finish well. We also take a moment and pray for our dear sister, Rosalie Hemingway, as she has lost her husband, Maceo, this week. May she experience your help and your strength in this time of grief. And for our time in your word, we pray that you would make it rich and make it real. Uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. We pray all this, of course, in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. amen. Let's take a look at Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1, as this fascinating story continues to unfold. The text reads like this. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. Pause right there and let me make a couple observations. First of all, let me remind you that these are some local enemies who do not support Nehemiah's rebuilding project. The issue is they want power and jurisdiction for themselves. And they can see that slipping away as the work of rebuilding continues. And so they've been opposing Nehemiah this whole time. And at first, they come to him with, with what seems like maybe a polite invitation. Come, let's get together and chat. They want to meet at Starbucks for a nice time over on the plains of Ono. A beautiful place to visit, by the way. But Nehemiah sees right through this and goes, oh, no, I'm not falling for that one. <laughs> Pastor Dave is so corny, so corny. That one just kind of leaps off the page. I just couldn't help myself there. Second thing is, notice how close he is to being done. You'll see in verse 1, there's no more gaps in the wall. He, he just has to install the, the doors in the gates. He's like, in a marathon, he's on mile marker 25. He's almost there. But what we see here is that oftentimes when we are following God's calling and, and we get towards the finish line, the enemy begins to recognize that his time is short. And so the enemy sees God's people knocking on the door of completing what God has called them to do. And at that point, he begins to pull out all of the stops. And sometimes uh, things get darkest right before the dawn. And so this first obstacle, if you want to fight to the finish, comes right out of the text. You've got to know that your enemy wants to distract you. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been working on some sort of big project or, or working on some kind of goal and you make a commitment, but then right before you're finished, there's this gigantic distraction uh, like recently, I was working on my physical health goals, and I was making some progress there, but I found myself at a large gathering of people with all of this unhealthy food. It's like, man, this isn't really supporting me and my, my goals. Or maybe you're working on some homework at school, and you're getting down to the deadline, and your friend calls you and wants to get together. Well, that's, that's going to be a distraction. Or you've had a long day at the office, and you're trying to get done what you have to get done to get out the door and... and, and and be there for your family, but something distracts you right before you can go home. Or, or maybe you're trying to save money for retirement, but little distractions take your money uh, away and they, they hinder you from reaching, reaching your goal. The closer we get to the finish line, the harder our enemy spiritually begins to try to stop us. And so in those times when it comes to distractions, I've got to learn, you've got to learn to say this one little word, and it's that word, no. Now, some of you have a hard time with that word. You don't like to disappoint people. Uh, you don't like to let people down. Uh, so let's practice saying it together just so that you get the habit. Ready? One, two, three. No. Pretty good. Pretty good. Now, say it like you mean it. One, two, three. No. no. See, you can do this. You can do this. Any person who's following Christ, any leader, is going to have to use this word, no. 
you cannot say yes to every distraction that comes your way. Your biggest challenge, though, I think, in following Christ is not necessarily discerning how to say no to the bad things. Hopefully, the Holy Spirit has convicted you enough at this point in your spiritual life where you know how to say no to the bad things. Your biggest challenge is going to be saying no to the good things, uh, the good things that are not necessarily the great things, the good things that are not necessarily a bad thing, but they're not the God thing that God has called you to do, and they're going to become a distraction. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. This is a good reminder for, for me because sometimes I get distracted. And here's what I've noticed. Maybe you can relate to this. The things I get distracted by are never as important as the thing I got distracted from. The things I get distracted by are typically not as important as what I was distracted from. This is the nature of procrastination. You're busy working on something important. It's difficult so you want to go do something more pleasurable and exciting, and you get distracted by that something, and you ended up procrastinating. Now, sometimes distractions are not a huge deal. Other times they are. They can really impact huge goals that you have in your spiritual lives. In your spiritual lives, they can take you off your wall. They can take you away from your calling. So the trick here is how do you say no? Like, when do you know when to say no? That's the trick. Uh, many people use what's called the Eisenhower Matrix for this. Maybe you're familiar with this. It, it, it was popularized by Stephen Covey in his book, Hi, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's got this x-axis and this y-axis. The x-axis is the level of urgency. The y-axis is the level of importance. And so depending upon where a given task falls in your life, that is how you handle it according to this matrix. Like if something is both important and urgent, then you put that in the quadrant that says do. You need to do this thing immediately. If a task is urgent but it is not important, then what you need to do is delegate that task. If a task is important but not urgent, then what you need to do is you need to schedule that task so that you do make time for it because it is important. And then if something's neither important nor urgent, really what you need to do is delete that task out of your life. So this quadrant tool kind of helps you say no to distractions, especially those in the blue quadrant there. Nehemiah was a planner. Maybe he had a tool like this. I don't know. But here's the goal according to this matrix. Somebody who has really good time management can maximize what's in that green box there. They can schedule what's important but not always urgent. And when it comes to your calling from God... That makes it really easy to discern how to say no to things that are not important. Lisa Turkhurst writes about this in her book, The Best Yes, when your yes goes to those things which align most closely to your gifting and to your calling from God. So let me just ask you, as you look at those boxes on the screen, what in your life needs to be moved around a little bit? What in your life maybe needs to go in a different quadrant? What distractions are in your life that need to be deprioritized or even deleted altogether. Uh, for me, one of the things in the blue quadrant became social media apps on my phone. That became a big time waster, and I realized this is not supporting me in reaching my goals. I don't know what that is for you. Maybe that's a good uh, lesson for you too, but there's some things that we need to maybe move around here to follow God's calling closely. So Nehemiah is careful about this distraction. Uh, the text goes on back to Nehemiah chapter 6 to describe those circumstances. Nehemiah says this, but, but they were scheming to harm me, verse 3, so I sent messengers to them with this reply, I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Notice, 
Nehemiah refuses to be distracted here because he's clear about something. He's clear about his calling from God. He says, I'm carrying on a great project and I cannot go down. He knew this project was a God thing. He knew how important it was for him to follow God and he knew he could not be distracted here. If you want to fight to the finish, if you want to finish well, you're going to have to remember the calling that God has on you. Look at that word great. That's not just for Nehemiah. This is true for any believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are carrying on a great work. And so, friends, we've got to learn to say the same thing that Nehemiah says here. In fact, let's say that phrase just in yellow together. Ready? I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. The enemy would love for you to believe that your work is not significant, but that is not true. If you're a child of God, you are his workmanship. He has created you in Christ Jesus to do good works. He has a high calling on your life. Uh, Dr. F.B. Meyer, a great Bible teacher earlier in the last century, said it this way. He says, O children of the great king, let us pray that we may know the grandeur of our position before him, the high calling with which we've been called, the vast responsibilities with which we've been entrusted, and the great work of cooperating with God. How can we go down? Friends, you are not accountable to your critics, though they may want you to be accountable to them. You are accountable to the one who invited you to partner with him in your calling. And so Nehemiah remembers all of this. Uh, So they attempt to distract him, and Nehemiah is not distracted. He says, I'm doing a great project. I will not come down. But the enemy does not give up. We wish he would, but the enemy is relentless. Take a look at verse 4. Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. These guys are persistent. Four emails. Come on over to the plains of Ono. No. Come on over to the plains of Ono. No. Come on over to the plains of Ono. No. Come on over to the plains of Ono. No. It's like those people who call you and inquire about the extended warranty on your car. They just won't stop calling. Have you ever been to like a timeshare presentation? Some people just don't take no for an answer. That's these guys. So Nehemiah keeps giving them the same answer every single time. No, read my lips, no, four different times. And then the enemy changes tactics. Take a look at verse five. Then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter. A little background here. You need to know that standard letters between political officials at that time were rolled up and secured with seals that could only be broken and opened by those with authority. But here it says they sent him an unsealed letter, which means anybody could read this. So as the letter was sent from one place to the next place, the contents would be read and the contents would start to spread. Have you ever gotten an email that's kind of confrontational and there's a bunch of people carbon copied on this email that don't necessarily need to be CC'd on that particular email and it's kind of passive aggressive and it kind of feels like manipulative for them to copy all of these people for no reason at all? This is the ancient version of that. So he, he gets this unsealed letter with intentions to harm him, and it, it actually tells us the contents of the letter. So here's what the letter says. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you're building the wall. 
Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so come, let us confer together. So inside of this unsealed letter is this accusation of rebellion. Uh, That's the kind of thing that would be a very serious charge against Nehemiah. The king of Persia would not tolerate any kind of sedition or resistance from his subjects. He would have to put down any kind of rebellion immediately and ruthlessly. But even though this accusation was totally false, word about Nehemiah's alleged rebellion would soon spread anyway because everybody was talking about this unsealed letter because they just posted it on Facebook or the ancient equivalent to Facebook. Hey, did you hear about that letter? Yeah, I heard about the letter. I heard about Nehemiah. Yeah, you know what I heard? I heard he's, just, he's trying to be king. King? Oh, my goodness. He's going he's gonna to be king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's building an army now. Is that so? Yeah, yeah, that's what I heard. The king of Persia is coming down. He's going to put down this rebellion. He's going to wipe us all out. I think he's on his way. Wow, I didn't hear about that. <laughs> News begins to spread. I heard it through the grapevine. <laughs> honey, honey. Mm, 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 mm. So here's the second tactic of the enemy. If the enemy cannot distract you, the enemy will attempt to discredit you. That's the goal here, to undermine Nehemiah's good name and his character, to malign his reputation. You know what the crazy thing about this is? First, Nehemiah is being accused of the very thing he's trying not to do this whole time, of some kind of power grab or some kind of control grab. He's been really intentional about not making it about that. And the second thing is he's, the ironic thing is he's being accused of the very thing that his enemies were guilty of. They, they're the ones who are worried about losing power and consolidating power and having control over this particular region, this area. The whole accusation is like 180 degrees off. The whole thing's like flipped on its head. It's nuts. And that's the way false accusations feel. They feel out of left field. They feel totally crazy. So let me just make a side point. Please don't believe everything that you read or hear, especially about your Christian brothers and sisters. Please consider the source. Please refuse to accept anything as true before it's documented and corroborated. Especially be wary of people who have an ax to grind. They're the ones who usually stretch the truth to make the other person look really bad. As a side point, I think this is actually gonna get more and more complicated in our day in terms of making false accusations against people. We're living in the very beginnings of artificial intelligence. Now, images and audio and videos of people can be generated to copy and reconstruct your exact voice and your exact image, and it looks so real. It looks like it's you, but it's actually not you. I heard somebody say that this is the year, 2023, when photographic and video evidence will cease to work in the court of law. Because now you don't really know if you're hearing that person's voice, or now you really don't know if you're seeing that person's image. It's kind of scary. There's some exciting things with AI, there's some really fun things with AI, but then there's some concerning things also from a Christian worldview. We hope you'll come this Saturday and learn more about that evolving technology, so sign up online. So there's this false accusation here, back to the text. Nehemiah's got to respond at this point, and the way he responds, I think, is one of the funniest verses in the whole Bible, Uh, and I I just got a kick out of the way he says this. Look at verse 8, if you will. He says this, I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you're saying is happening. 
you are just making it up out of your head. <laughs> he just denies the false accusation outright. You're lying, it's wrong, hashtag fake news, there's no rebellion, there's no sedition, this is not true, and then he puts the blame back where it belongs. Why were they doing this? Well, it tells us in verse nine, they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. They're trying to discourage them. They're trying to scare them. They're trying to make their hands grow weak. That's the real goal here, to stop the good work that God has called Nehemiah to do. And so that's the next tactic of the enemy, isn't it? The enemy wants to discourage you. The enemy wants to discourage you. The enemy wants you to be put on the bench, to be knocked down. I know it hurts to be falsely accused. I know it stings. I know it's so discouraging. But in those moments, you've got to stay focused and ask God for strength to help you keep going. That's what Nehemiah does. He gets this unsealed letter. He reads it. And then what does he do next? It says this, but I prayed. He pauses for a moment to talk to his heavenly father as he has done 14 other times in this book. He turns to the Lord in prayer. He's discouraged, he's knocked down, and he turns to God. This is a great example for you and for me, brothers and sisters. Many of you, you need to sit down and pray like this like every day before you go to work. Maybe you're the only Christian in your workplace and it's really difficult for you to continue to do the right thing there. You gotta sit down and pray. Uh, maybe for some of you, you've had some long-term prayer requests that you've been asking God to answer for months or maybe years. You've got to continue to turn to God and ask him for his help. Nehemiah turns to God, and what does he pray for this time? Well, it tells us this. He says, but I prayed, now strengthen my hands. And isn't that exactly what we need from God in those moments of discouragement? This kind of problem can really sap all of my energy. And so this is our prayer when that kind of thing happens. We pray, God, strengthen my hands. You know, sometimes on Sunday mornings when we come in for corporate worship, I love to see people lifting up their hands to God in worship. And sometimes I imagine that this is their prayer posture as they're singing and praising God, saying, Lord, strengthen my hands. I need your strength right now. I'm, I'm weak. Lord, fill me and use me and mold me and encourage me and strengthen my hands. Nehemiah is this great, strong leader, but notice he's not confessing how strong he is here. He's confessing his weakness here. The principle that comes out of this text is somewhat counterintuitive. It's this. God gives strength to those who will acknowledge not their strength, but their weaknesses. God gives strength to those who will acknowledge their weakness. On one occasion, the champ Muhammad Ali was on an airplane. And as the flight was about to take off, the stewardess said, it's time to buckle up your seatbelt. Muhammad Ali began to argue with her, saying, do you know who I am? I'm Superman, and Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the stewardess said, champ, you're right, but Superman don't need no airplane either, so sit down and buckle up. <laughs> Friends, many of us like to pretend like we're Superman. And I hate to be the one to break it to you, but you are not as strong as you think you are. All it takes is one phone call. All it takes is one letter in the mail. All it takes is one meeting. All it takes is one trip to the doctor's office. 
All it takes is a car sliding out of its lane and sliding into your lane. It takes so little for life to confront us with the fact that we are not as strong as we think we are. But friends, the good news of the gospel is that if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, then he has promised to provide strength in your time of weakness. I was warned this week by reading a different passage in the Bible about a different Bible character. If you'll allow me just to take a little bit of a rabbit trail, it was about King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26. He took the throne in Judah at age 16. He reigned for 50 years, but his success turned to great failure. And the passage simply says King Uzziah was marvelously helped until he became strong. And it says, when he became strong, he became lifted up in his pride to his own destruction. And he thought that his authority as king gave him the right to usurp the ministry of the priest. And he tried to intrude there at the altar, and he was struck with leprosy. And the most powerful man in Israel at that time died alone with leprosy. The problem was this king began to trust in his own strength, and God had to put him in his place Do not fall in love with yourself and be like Uzziah. Rather, follow the example of Nehemiah who confesses not his strength but his weakness. Be like the Apostle Paul to whom God said, My grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. The more self-sufficient I feel, the weaker I will be. The weaker I feel, the more I will lean on God and receive his everlasting strength. Friends, God provides strength when we are weak, but we have to ask him and say, Lord, strengthen my hands. Isaiah chapter 40 says, even young men stumble and fall, even youths grow tired and weary, but those who wait upon the Lord, he will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not be faint. So pray, strengthen my hands. That's how Nehemiah handles discouragement. Does the enemy give up? What do you think? No, of course not. The enemy moves on to tactic number four. It's the worst one. The enemy actually wants to destroy you. That's what the thief does. He comes to kill, to steal, and destroy. The enemy does not let up. He's relentless. And so now he tries another idea. This one's the worst of all. Verse 10 tells the story. Nehemiah says, one day... I went to the house of Shemaiah. His last name's Carrie. That's Mariah Carey's brother, Shemaiah Carey. <laughs> so corny. Man, the corny jokes just keep on pouring out today. Shemaiah, who was shut up in his home, and he said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they're coming to kill you. So this prophet tells Nehemiah he's in danger. And I don't know about you, but after everything he's already gone through, I'd probably be thinking, okay, thanks for the warning. But Nehemiah, because he's a discerning spiritual leader, he begins to suspect that something's wrong here and something's a little off because this messenger, this, this prophet from God doesn't seem to be aligned with the way that God usually speaks. And Nehemiah is discerning that maybe isn't the, this isn't the voice of God. Maybe this is the voice of somebody else. And in these moments, you need spiritual discernment to know the difference. And Nehemiah has spiritual discernment. You need spiritual discernment. Let me put that up on the screen for you. You need spiritual discernment. If you want to fight to the finish, 
The enemy will attack you in ways that will short-circuit God's calling and purpose for your life, and you need to spiritually discern what he's up to. For example, someone invites you to join them after work for happy hour. You need to discern whether or not that's a wise idea for you to join them, or is that the enemy trying to destroy you? Someone of the opposite gender wants to meet with you privately, and something about this invitation just doesn't seem right to you. You need to have spiritual discernment to see if this is a good idea or not. So the enemy recognizes, I don't think this is a good idea. I don't think this tactic sounds right. And with his spiritual discernment, uh, he decides to answer in this way, verse 11. But I said, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. Nehemiah is not going to hide out in the temple. He says, no, I, I will not go. First of all, Nehemiah knows he's the leader. Running away would be cowardly of him. People would hear about that, and they would start talking. Hey, guess where Nehemiah is sleeping tonight? In the temple. In the temple? Why is he sleeping in the temple? I guess he's scared. He's scared? Our great leader is scared. Why is he huddled over there in the temple scared? That doesn't really sound right. See, people would begin to see this, and they would begin to talk. That kind of attitude would not be the model of courageous leadership that his people needed at this time. So he says, no, I will not go. Someone like me cannot do something like that. I love that response. He responds with a sense of his true identity in Christ, or in God, I should say. Should a man like me run away? He's falling back on his consciousness of who he really is. He knows he has a sacred responsibility and a sacred relationship with God. Wait a minute, I'm a firm believer in the Most High God. I need not resort to trickery to face my fears. I'm a child of the King. I don't need to do that kind of thing. So right here we see a lesson even for you and me in this little interchange. If I want to fight to the finish, if you want to fight to the finish and you're presented with an opportunity to compromise in some way, this should be your answer. Should someone like me do something like that? See, what's good enough for everybody else is not good enough for you because you belong to God. The Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 4, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. You march to the beat of a different drummer. Nehemiah knows, knows that. He remembers who he is. Now, another reason why Nehemiah didn't want to do this is because he knew it would be sinful. It would be desecrating to the temple, to the house of God, to hide out in there. And so that's where Nehemiah begins to discern this whole prophecy does not sound right. 12 and 13. He says, I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. So right here, Nehemiah realizes this whole thing was a false prophecy. It's made up to try to scare him. It's made up to intimidate him. It's made up to dis discredit him. It's not legit. It's a farce. It is, as my daughter Felicity likes to say, Mad sus. This is mad sus, Dad. This is mad sus. This whole thing just doesn't smell right. It's there to knock Nehemiah off his wall. So Nehemiah says, no, I'm not. First of all, number one, I'm not coming down. Number two, I'm not giving up. I am not giving up. This is why I love Nehemiah. He's like a role model for me as a leader. He's got this spine. He's got this spine of like steel. No, I'm not giving up. Can we say that together? I am not giving up. 
I'm going to finish what God called me to do. I'm going to finish what I started. I'm staying until the job is done. I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up my good name. I'm not giving up on the Lord. I am not giving up. you got to learn to say that with God's calling in your life. God's people have to persevere. God's people have to stand firm. 500 years ago, the great Martin Luther, as we celebrate today as Reformation Sunday, had to learn this lesson for himself. As he studied the book of Romans and realized in chapter one that the righteousness that God provides there is not the righteousness by which God is righteous, but the righteousness that God gives as a gift to his children by faith, and he recovered the gospel of justification by faith alone, he realized that paradise was open and the doors were swung open for him and he walked through. And at that point, he began to proclaim a different gospel than the gospel of Rome. And just like Nehemiah, he had to face a lot of opposition for those teachings. And they brought him before uh, cardinals and councils. And, and he had to stand ultimately at the Diet of Worms. And they said, Luther, will you recant of these writings? And do you remember his answer? He said, don't you see, I can't recant. Unless I'm convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason my conscience is held captive by the word of God. And an act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. I'm not giving up. That's how the Reformation started. We stand on his shoulders. And so our call from God is to be the kind of resolute person that's evidenced here through Nehemiah and be like a Luther and not give up on the calling that God has for us. So Nehemiah has opposition. He's got enemies. And look how he handles them in verse 14. He just simply prays for them. He says, Lord, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, because of what they've done. Remember also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who've been trying to intimidate me. Notice. He doesn't take revenge into his own hands. He simply asks God to handle his enemies on his behalf. Did you know that that's something that God has promised to do for you? Deuteronomy chapter 28 says, the Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before your face. They will come against you in one way, they will flee in seven ways. And so Nehemiah is simply claiming the promises of God here. I'm gonna let God handle those who are against me. I'm gonna leave this stuff in God's hands. Vengeance is his, he will repay. And what's so amazing to me about Nehemiah is he doesn't let any of this stuff break his focus. He doesn't let any of this stuff get him off track. He knows what God's called him to do. He pours out his heart to God in prayer and then he gets back to work. And that's why this section today ends with such a sweet and satisfying couple of verses. I just love it. Take a look at verse 15, where it simply says in such an understated way, so the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. Isn't that amazing? Despite everything the enemy threw at him, he finished the job. He made it through the three phases of any project. You know what those three phases are? Impossible, difficult, done. He's now got to the done phase. The project is over. Record time. Amazing. Less than two months. That's really fast to be done with this whole thing. The city of Jerusalem had been in shambles, not for months, not for years, not for decades. For over a hundred years, this city had been broken down. He rebuilt the thing in 52 days. It's amazing. Such an understatement. And so the wall was completed. I love all of the so statements in the book of Nehemiah 
Maybe you've caught them as we've been going along. Back in chapter two, when he stood before the most powerful person in the whole world, it just simply says, so I prayed. Then when he was given permission to rebuild, it says, so I came to Jerusalem. When he was calling the people together to get this job done, it says, so they strengthened their hands for this good work. When things got really busy, Nehemiah says, so we labored in the work. And finally, here in chapter six, as he begins to pack up all the tools and put them back in the truck, so the wall was completed. The point here is obstacle after obstacle after obstacle, Nehemiah has overcome by just continually pushing forward one step at a time with dedication, with determination, with persistence that ultimately reaps rich dividends. And isn't the same thing true for us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? Perseverance and endurance and stick to are very powerful in God's people. And so when God's people will set their minds to work and trust God for strength and press through the difficulties, God will bless you and God will help you to finish well what God has called you to do. You know how I know that? Because the Bible says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Because 1 Thessalonians chapter five says this, faithful is he who calls you and he will also bring it to pass. Notice the date. It says it was completed on the 25th of Elul. This week I was interacting with Rabbi Mendy across the street, letting him know that we're praying for Israel, that we're so very sorry about these atrocities. I said, by the way, do you know anything about Nehemiah 6, 15, and the date when the wall was completed? Is there anything significant about that? He goes, yeah, the 25th of Elul is the first day of creation. Typically, Rosh Hashanah is the creation of man, and then you just back it up six days. Let there be light. 25th of Elo. And so the symbolism here is rich, isn't it? This is a new creation. This is a new beginning. This is a new restoration. This is God saying, I'm going to let you start again. I'm going to restore my people. I'm going to bring you back, and I'm going to restore you so that we can continue to be the city of God. The 25th of Elo, the wall was completed. And as soon as this project is done, finally the tables begin to turn in their favor. Take a look at one last verse for today, verse 16. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. If God is the source of your vision and your calling, there will come a day where even your harshest critics will have a difficult time explaining away what God has done through you. Nothing silences your critics like your vision coming to completion. Even their enemies are like, God is at work here. This wasn't about Nehemiah's efforts. This wasn't about Ezra. This wasn't about Artaxerxes. This wasn't about all those people who worked so hard on the wall. This was about the greatness of our God. And what a testimony. The, this work had been done with the help of our God. All this is possible because God made it so. Can we say that part in yellow together? This work had been done with the help of our God. That's how it gets done, to God be the glory. So let me ask you, what do you need done with the help of our God? 
What is it in your life that you need to be finished with the help of our God? Whatever it is, my challenge today is to finish the work God has set before you with the help of our amazing God. And when he allows you to finish it, do not forget to turn around and praise him in great thanksgiving and say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Now here's the reality. None of us in our own strength can really finish what God has for us. All of us falter. All of us fail. All of us grow tired. All of us grow weary. For all of us, our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it, prone to leave the God we love. All people have fallen short of this high calling. Except one. There was one. Uh, There was one who came who never failed. There was one who came 400 years later to do the work that his heavenly father called him to do. And he came to do a greater work than the work of Nehemiah here. He came to do the greatest work of restoration that has ever been done by anyone. And oh, how the enemy tried to come at him. Oh, how the enemy tried to distract him. Oh, how the enemy tried to discredit him. Oh, how the enemy tried to discourage him. Oh, how the enemy tried to destroy him. But in that pursuit of destruction, what the enemy did not know is that in his very pursuit, the great irony is that it was through that weakness and through that destruction that God Almighty did the greatest work of restoration that has ever been known. As the Lord Jesus Christ hung on the cross, seemingly destroyed, saying, It is finished. The work is done. The greatest wall ever has been completed. The city of God is underway. The Lord Jesus Christ has done the work the Father has called him to do. And now, after we receive his work by faith, his spirit comes to live on the inside of us, the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead. And now he turns to you and he turns to me. And he says, with my help living on the inside of you, I have a calling for you and I want you to fight to the finish. One more quote from Winston Churchill. During World War II, after the fall of France and the surrender of the Belgian army to Germany, Churchill had just experienced a very difficult military loss of 30,000 men. It was at that moment he knew his country needed to be galvanized and encouraged, and that's when he made perhaps his most famous speech of his prime ministership, saying this, we shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall never surrender. So NBC, Let's fight. No matter what distractions or discouragements or defeats you experience, finish strong. Finish well. Fight to the finish. Although everything looks bleak, you got to fight to the finish. It might look like the other side's winning right now. you got to fight to the finish. You might think you can't cope anymore, that there's too much pressure. you got to fight to the finish. You might think your problems are too great. People might thwart you and fight you. you got to fight to the finish. When you're discouraged, fight to the finish. When you're tired, fight to the finish. When you're worried, fight to the finish. When you're afraid, fight to the finish. And when you don't think you can go one more step, you gotta fight to the finish because our God is fighting for you and through you. 
And you can say at the end, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Can you imagine a church full of men and women fighting to the finish? Let's be that church. I'd like to invite the worship team to come and lead us in one final song. And as we do, let's pray. God, every head bowed, every eye closed, we pause for a moment to humble ourselves in your sight. You know every single fight represented in this room today. You know our battles that we're facing. You know where we're weak. You know what we need even before we ask you. Lord, you know my friends here and all the hurts they have and all the fears they have and the struggles they have and even the sins that they have. You know our loneliness. You know our grief. Would you please help my brothers and sisters here today to fight to the finish? I ask you, God, for those who are weak and discouraged that you would strengthen their hands. I pray, God, that you would help us to be faithful to you, to pursue you. And all of this, Lord, we pray for our good and for your glory. And when you help us to fight to the finish, we'll be very careful to say it was our God who made all of this possible and turn that glory and praise back to you for your worthy. We worship you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.